to Sanchiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. And we have reached the halfway point in our Akira Kurosawa retrospective. Not sure if oh. you're aware of that. I did not know that at all. Yeah, we're doing 35 episodes, I guess technically 34 films, so halfway there. Yeah, halfway there. I don't know. That's exciting. And I will venture so far as to say we might be going into the better half. Oh, yes, we are. But also... Maybe couldn't tell that from what we got today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> today we are talking about I Live in Fear. Yeah, I Live in Fear from 1955, also known as Record of a Living Being. It seems to have a really split usage of the titles. I don't know why. Yeah, common misconception. It's also known as Sacrifice by Tarkovsky. <laughs> After watching it, I think I Live in Fear works as a better title. Yeah, Record of a Living Being makes it sound like it's a good film. I think after watching it, it's a more apt title to call it I Live in Fear. Also, if someone is looking for this podcast specifically and they're watching it on the Criterion channel like we are, then I guess this is how they'd find it. Not that that would ever, ever happen because I don't know a single person that's ever talked about this movie. I don't know the person desperate to find a podcast on record of a living being who doesn't also know (laughs) that it's called I Live in Fear. They'll, They'll be fine. And how strange to have this weird, mysterious film as Kurosawa's Seven Samurai follow-up made the very next year. Well, everyone has shitty rebounds. He was like, I'm going to take a break and do something I care about, and it won't be good. And that's fine. (laughs) So this film is Kurosawa working through some of his own nuclear anxieties. And 1954, the year before, is when Godzilla came out. The whole nation had these pre-existing fears on the brain again because Russia and the United States and other nations were doing more nuclear experimentation, and it just raised all sorts of alarms for what the future could hold, and still does. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I was a little bit confused about this timeline. At one point, I even paused the movie to look up when it was supposed to take place in. He is so afraid of this thing that happened so long ago, and as far as I know, in 1955, which is when the movie more or less takes place, like, why would he be afraid? But makes sense that it came out contemporaneously with like a bunch of other films and you know, like tensions were getting ratcheted up and that's why nuclear crisis is on the mind. I would assume it's probably like in universe that it's just been a simmering fear for the last decade and now it's starting to really take hold of him as he's gotten older. It isn't given a specific explanation. Yeah. And let me like say in the beginning, perfectly legitimate thing to be afraid of. It's just like comes across as odd in the movie. And I think it's supposed to. Yeah. When society as a whole is kind of not moved on. They'll never move on from the tragedies of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they are accepting it as a past reality and understanding that the world that they live in now in the nuclear age has changed. Yeah, that makes sense. And in that light, this movie makes a little bit more sense. This is a another personal film for Kurosawa, and unfortunately there is a lot of sad behind-the-scenes information that kind of makes the movie that we have today make a little more sense. Okay. As we alluded to last week, this is Kurosawa's final collaboration with his composer, Fumio Hayasaka, and this is also Hayasaka's sole writing credit. Interesting. So he was actually a creative force behind the film, and Kurosawa and him were working on it together while he was pretty much on his deathbed. He was very close to death, and he died in the middle of production, and that really, really hurt Kurosawa. Yeah, to be working with the man for so long, and he was such an important part of his already at this point historic career yeah that is very sad i didn't know any of that he was considered one of if not his top artistic collaborator and he said you know this man totally changed the way that kurosawa viewed film score and what it could do and i think hayasaka is such an incredible composer i've actually been listening to a lot of his non-film score music for this past week ever since we watched seven samurai and he really was a fantastic musical prodigy 
There's not much music in this film, but I really do like the music that he did have. Part of the score is also done by Masaru Sato, whom Hayasaka mentored. Sato finished the score after Hayasaka died, and then he would score the next eight Kurosawa films. Okay, so he kind of takes the space that Hayasaka left behind, it seems. Yeah, he's picking up the mantle from Hayasaka. They were making this film, and they originally conceived of it as a satire. Well. And as it went on, it became harder and harder to make it work, and it started to turn more tragic. The way that it was reading, it sounded a lot like when we discussed Scandal, how Scandal was changing as Kurosawa was making it, and the movie started becoming less about Toshiro Mifune's character and more about Takashi Shimura's character. Yeah. I think of it in kind of the same way, where it just seems like, as they worked on it, things changed, and they wound up with a weird, finished product that Kurosawa acknowledges is deeply flawed, but he is glad that he made it because of this personal connection for him. Yeah, I mean... They can't all be complete bangers, and if it's a personal film to him, then that's great. Definitely, though, it comes out it comes out strange in the wash. Yeah, you want to tell him what's so strange about it? The Nakajima family finds itself at odds with its patriarch, Kiichi, who is petrified at the prospect of nuclear war destroying Japan. Desperate to evacuate his family from the nation, he has his sights set on buying a farm in Brazil. His family takes him to family court, attempting to rule him incompetent. After his family refuses to join him, Kiichi resolves to burn down his family's factory to force them to leave. Afterwards, he is confined to a mental hospital. Dr. Narada, who helped arbitrate the dispute in family court, meets with Kiichi, curious as to which is more insane, his fear of destruction or everyone else's ignorance towards its possibility. As expected, this is a Takashi Shimura and Toshiro Mifune film. However, would you expect that the old person <laughs> is not played by Takashi Shimura, but is played by Toshiro Mifune playing a character double his age? That is the main thing about this film. The one takeaway, the thing that will stick with me, the only thing it is probably remembered for, why the fuck is Toshiro Mifune playing this hundred-year-old man when Takashi Shimura could have done it, or he could have just gotten someone else or anything? It's crazy. <laughs> He's in this insane makeup. His hair is, like, gray. It looks offensive, honestly. I couldn't explain how. It just, it seems offensive. It looks like what you would see in a theater. Yeah. Like a live theater performance of an actor playing an old man. Yeah, but it's in a movie where everyone else looks normal. <laughs> and it just is so odd. Admittedly, I think he does a good job with the character. But it's almost, and this is going to sound stupid, it's almost more of a caricature than a character. Because he is kind of constantly reminding you that he's this old, angry man. So he's always hunching, always doing his little thing. And it's just, it becomes almost unnatural because he's putting so much into this performance. I do think that there are parts of it where it works and it does feel like he's an old man, and then there are other times where it doesn't. Yeah, there are times where you're like, oh, this Toshiro Mifune, this, like, 35-year-old sex guy, <laughs> the hottest man in Japan. Toshiro Mifune covered in, like, baby powder, and other times it's like, oh, that's an old Japanese man. Yeah, sometimes, from a distance, when you're not thinking about it. <laughs> and then next to him is Takashi Shimura, famous for playing an old man in one of his best roles, <laughs> playing just, like, a regular guy. Yeah, I don't, I, I do not understand Dr. Narada, who he is or why he is in the movie, because he's a dentist who also arbitrates family court. I think he's just a respected man in society, and that's the only role he has to play. Why don't they have, like, a judge? <laughs> well, there's a lawyer, a dentist, and then a judge as well, I think that guy. <laughs> a, a dentist doesn't fit in with those other two. I don't agree. <laughs> I think a, a doctor... It happens to be a dental doctor, but a doctor in any case is kind of the same as a lawyer or a judge. Yeah, but if he was like a psychologist, maybe. No, no. Psychologists are crank weirdos. Dentists are like a, just a normal doctor. 
I think he could have been a regular doctor, but it would have made his life too chaotic to spend all his time contemplating this case. I think he had to be a dentist, which is kind of like a more chill life than the life of a doctor. Yeah, a doctor that can just leave his patient and go to court. Yeah, doctor is like, oh yeah, I'll be gone for the rest of the day. I, he's like, at work, he's like, I gotta go to work again. It's like, yeah. isn't this your career? Nope. <laughs> when he was reading that book about nuclear, the Ashes book, I was like, oh, this is about to be like a first reformed, he's gonna go crazy or something. I hope, because that'll be more interesting, but no. I thought the exact same thing. Yeah, I, like, I was like, oh, the movie's gonna follow him now more, at least, but no, it's just, he comes in intermittently. He's kind of the glue that holds nothing together. <laughs> In terms of the coherence of the plot. That certainly seems to be his role as like this straight man, whatever, this like every man to observe the situation. But it, it just it comes across weird. He seems both too important and underdeveloped and useless at the same time. He is the first of many weird parts of this film. And I really don't think his character is necessary to the story. I would think that what his character could have done or kind of does do in the background of stuff I think that his arc would have been better if he was a member of the family that was actually starting to be convinced by his father's argument or his brother's argument or something instead of this stranger who was witnessing it. Yeah, maybe. It would have been a totally different character. He really doesn't play a part in a lot of the movie. He's not in most of the movie. And he just randomly appears and it's like, oh, is he going to start mattering? And then he doesn't. Until the very, very end where he underlines the main idea of the film. Yeah, he, like, kind of opens and closes the film, but it's just, like, not woven enough throughout to make it really work. And he has such a tenuous connection to this family anyway that every time he's kind of there, it's contrived. Yeah, it's like, they don't know who he is. And I'm like, I agree. Yeah, I also don't know who he is. He's <laughs> Takashi Shimura, so he feels important in the movie, but he's not. But he is. <laughs> yeah, the, can you imagine, like, Takashi Shimura and Toshiro Mifune seeing these roles and thinking that the other person is going to be cast in each one and starting to, like, prepare for the line, like, starting to learn the lines and prepare, and then they find out that they're switched? <laughs> I think Takashi Shimura could have done the role well. He's not quite as angry and awful <laughs> as Toshiro Mifune can be, and Toshiro Mifune could have been a cool dentist who's concerned about this old man, but nope, we got the way it is, and the way it is is weird. I like the idea for the movie. I think it is nice that he was making a movie about the concerns he feels about nuclear weapons and their existence, but it comes out so weird. I agree. I really like the concept, but the execution is just really strange. The plot synopsis is short because a lot of the movie is really just covering the same ground over and over again. Yeah, to the point where it's almost insane. The Nakajima family is taking Kichi to court and they're trying to rule him incompetent because he's going nuts. And we start to see how exactly that madness is manifesting in the family when he brings in a man from Brazil who is offering to sell him a farm. And I think this is an actor in blackface. I did think about this. I think the actor himself probably has fairly dark skin and also is just a guy who's been tanning his whole life. I don't think he's in blackface makeup. I think he just is a very weird looking man. But he's been in other movies that we've seen. Oh, he has? I didn't recognize him then. <laughs> he, in Seven Samurai, he was the kidnapper. The one who Takashi Shimura kills for the baby oh. near the beginning. Okay, really? He looked a lot younger a, a, then. A quick roll. I, I've looked at pictures of him and he is not nearly as dark in real life as he was in this movie. Okay, well then, you win. He's in blackface. <laughs> well, he's not black though, is the thing. Is he supposed to be Japanese or is he supposed to be Brazilian? I don't know. I actually have no idea because they don't even give him a name. He's just called the man from Brazil. So we don't even get a sense of does this man have a Japanese name or is he supposed to be totally Brazilian? I have absolutely no clue. It's another thing that's just really strange about the people playing characters in this movie. <laughs> the man looks nuts, sounds nuts. 
is like totally crazy in his presentation beyond being in proto blackface he plays them a very unconvincing film of Brazil and just like kind of a bad shitty angle of some trees and that looks nice enough and then his like cult family and he like smiles and walks towards the camera and then it ends. I don't know why Brazil specifically. I don't remember if they even said anything about it. It's just he's really fixated on this part specifically. Yeah, they say something about a lot of other Japanese people want to move to Brazil. Oh, right, right, right. Maybe something about in the 50s that was like a thing. I assume that must be what it does. In the 50s that was like a thing. Yeah, was it? I don't know. Might have been like everyone. Maybe Brazil was just popular at the time. I don't know why he has any. I don't know why he thinks Brazil will be immune to nuclear war. <laughs> in the end of the movie, finally, one character is like, "You'd still die in Brazil, you jackass." And the entire movie, I was like, "Why didn't someone tell him that earlier?" <laughs> this whole plot is based on just like no one sitting with him and being like, "This won't work," <laughs> like even on your own terms. This plan is crazy. But no one does that until the end, and then he finally loses his mind. But yeah, it's another thing that made me crazy about this film was at any point someone could have just been like. Yeah, you're a crank and you're an asshole, whatever. But if you think about your own plan from your own perspective, it won't work. Because if you go to Brazil, you'd still die in a nuclear war. Yeah, if the whole world is on fire and dying, then you will be on fire and dying in Brazil instead of in Japan with your family. Yeah, and society. In any case, we're kind of going through the plot. So they're taking him to family court. He is fanning himself over and over again and kind of crinkling the fan because he's this huge, crazy jackass. Yeah, a lot like Stray Dog, where there's just a really overwhelming heat wave coming through, which I think works for the idea of nuclear war, of just extreme heat coming all around Japan. Everyone is always sweaty and fanning themselves like they did in Stray Dog, and we'll see that in High and Low. Yeah, it is like Stray Dog, but it just, I think it works less because, yeah, there's like a vague, tenuous connection to nuclear war. But otherwise, like, uh, this isn't really adding anything. They're not going, like, delirious from the heat like they do in Stray Dog. It's just hot all the time. (laughs) I'm taking it where I can get it, because there aren't even as many Kurosawa techniques on display here. I mean, we have a lot of rain in a lot of scenes. A lot of really obvious, strangely contrived rain, where something bad happens and then it starts raining really hard. It is trying to trick us and think someone's about to drop a bomb, but it's really just thunder, and then all of that starts as he's kind of having this release of tension. It works, but it does feel very contrived, like a lot of things happening. The film also reminded me a bit of No Regrets for Our Youth, where it's a movie about a social problem that's affecting a family, but it isn't really, like, a political statement about something that we should be doing or how Kurosawa thinks the solution could be found. It's really just, here is a problem that we're all facing, and here's a family dealing with this problem. Yeah, I think the lack of politics actually was to the detriment of the film, and I also thought the family stuff was the best stuff in the movie. When he brings his illegitimate children, he has several illegitimate children, by the way, audience, when he brings them to his actual legitimate children, I thought that was like the most interesting thing in the film was them all interacting and avoiding each other, but being concerned about the will, which is like reasonable. And they're all like, oh, how dare you talk about the will? But then they're like, well, I kind of get it. Like, he's your dad, too. <laughs> like, how dare you? But we really should talk about this. Yeah, will. yeah. Like that was, I thought, the best stuff in the movie. It had nothing to do with impending nuclear war at all. Like it was just a family thing. Yeah, I agree. The family is interesting. I, I do wish that the family was a little bit better defined. Oh, it was confusing as hell. It's very confusing. I don't think that there are more than just a few important characters that have names and then everyone else is kind of just an extra. I don't know anyone's name. Yeah. It's strange because he's very concerned about family. Kiichi is a family man, but he's also cheated on his wife a lot and had two or three illegitimate children. And he wants to bring them, his ex-mistresses, his current mistress, and all of his children and his wife to Brazil. It's very strange to have all those parts of his life come together, and it just points to this man totally losing his grasp on reality. 
when he says, just come on, it'll be fine. We can all go. And everyone is like, no, we don't want to live with your illegitimate children. And they don't want to live with us. Like, we want to stay in Japan. Look at your wife. She's so sad seeing all these women that you cheated on her with. Yeah. And the kids feel awkward and he finally brings them all together. That's like kind of later in the movie. But yeah, I guess that is him losing his mind because how on earth could he think that's okay? The whole middle of the movie is just him meeting with different families and saying, hey, do you want to come to Brazil? Uh, no. <laughs> it's like, it's like the meme, come to Brazil. <laughs> and then he goes to another family, goes, hey, do you want to come to Brazil? And then they say, um, no. No. <laughs> hey, you asked me before. No. He's like, hey, can I have money? And they're like, is it to move to Brazil? And he's like, maybe. <laughs> they're like, no. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. That's the majority of the film. One of the major reasons that none of his main family want to move is because the Nakajimas own a factory in Tokyo. A very successful factory. And they're like, this is how we make money. We're making a good living here. We don't want to leave it. We don't know how to farm. <laughs> We're not farmers. Yeah, we can't. We can't just start a farm in Brazil. We're not going to survive. <laughs> and he like clearly doesn't want to live in a Brazilian town where they could buy food. <laughs> they're moving to a farm in the middle of nowhere. He wants to be away from everybody. Yeah, it's truly crazy, which kind of, you know, makes Takashi Shimura's character saying, well, is he really crazy? A little less credible because he's actually just totally nuts. <laughs> it's more like this guy is crazy, but he has a good point. He does have a good point. But he's definitely crazy. That isn't really a question. <laughs> yeah, it's just like a little, a little, there's so much time is dedicated to, well, maybe he has a good point. But without kind of, I think, developing that into anything other than well, it doesn't matter that he has a good point because he's nuts and this is an urgent problem that the family is facing. I almost got mad at the end when the uh, doctor was like, sometimes when I look at him, I think, is he the crazy one or are we? I was like, yeah, I get that that's the point of the movie. Like, thank you for saying it yeah. in so many words. Maybe I'm the Joker. Yeah. <laughs> if only Seth Skohara was here. When I made that joke about being sacrificed earlier, I was like, it's also Joker. It's also first reformed. <laughs> Kurosawa's influence lives on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You could definitely take this movie and remake it a lot better. Yeah, it's called Sacrifice. <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> there is a good movie here, and it sucks that there were so many issues and that he kind of rushed it. He says that he made this movie too early. He thinks that not quite like, quote unquote, ahead of its time, but just that he should have made it years later. And I think reading between the lines, probably written a few more drafts. Yeah, I think maybe, and not to say that he's not at a high point in his career, but maybe still it's a later career film to make when he is closer to the old man in question that he's trying to analyze and not just kind of being like, look at this crazy guy. Look at this crazy 80-year-old slash like 37-year-old. The point at which this movie is the most like Sacrifice is when, out of fear of the impending bomb and to move his family, he burns down <laughs> everything he owns. That's like foreshadowed, kind of obviously. By the blackface man saying, you know, I didn't want to move to Brazil, but then my dad burned my house down. And then I had to. <laughs> and then at like the peak point of him begging everyone to go, everyone's saying no, he thinks it's all over. He burns the factory down. I do like that there's one scene early on where he's walking through the factory and there's one employee getting reprimanded for not attending to the embers, saying that it could burn the whole place down. And then later on, that's how Kichi will do it. So like, that's a nice little touch, planting the idea a little bit. And then, yeah, the blackface Brazilian man really hits the nail on the head and tells you what he's going to do. Yeah, when he says, my dad burnt my house down, I was like, oh, well, I guess Kichi is going to burn down the foundry. It's almost, it's inevitable, but whatever. It's certainly inevitable, but it is a good scene, I think. Oh, yeah, it, it happens quite well. 
it looks intentionally very reminiscent of nuclear destruction, which I like that he's kind of surrounded himself with this reality. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And all the employees are upset with him. They're saying, what about us? Like, like, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> you're so concerned about your family and we get it, but what about us? This was our life. We we need this. And he's like, oh, um, come to Brazil with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I think like up until that point, even including burning the thing, he's like not exactly crazy but that's the point at which like truly he has gone to peak madness when he's like you can all come to brazil with me it'll be okay (laughs) this man will move the entire nation of japan to brazil yeah he'll form a new japan in brazil where no nuclear bomb can touch them that is the point at which some guy who was my favorite character in the movie was like listen you dumb fuck you'll still die in brazil (laughs) he gets mad at him and then his daughter like defends him and i was like no that guy's right and someone should have said that at like oh (laughs) five minutes into the film and that of course breaks his brain entirely like legitimately breaks his brain entirely and he goes to a psych ward yep and he winds up institutionalized his cuck son ichiro i think is running what remains of the family business now or it might be jiro who's really like the alpha son yeah the his dumb alpha son the family really is only given glimpses is really a lot of fighting amongst them and then a lot of them fighting him yeah a lot of like family members beating each other up which is kind of wild like a little more than I was expecting or comfortable with. It was intense. Like, J- Jiro beating his sister. <laughs> yeah. For, like, nothing. And then, you know, the dad beating Jiro, maybe more deservedly. Yeah, it was, like, a lot of it. And it kept happening. I was like, wow, this is, this is a lot. Finally, Takashi Shimura reemerges in the narrative at the very end because he wants to visit Kiichi in the psych ward. And we've seen him a few times talking with his own son because he's starting to have the nuclear fears Tracks him down a train, yeah. Threatening to take over his own life a little bit. Yeah, but he's a normal guy, so it doesn't. He meets with Kichi in his, not cell, but I guess just his room, and he's looking out and seeing, like, all of Japan is on fire, which we don't see it, but it's just in his head, just, like, totally consumed in nuclear flame. But he's seeing is the sun. He thinks the sun is planet Earth and it's on fire. He thinks he's on a different planet. He's looking at a cell at the sun. He's like, oh my god, the sun is Earth in nuclear flames. Because he has truly, like, lost his mind. So he's just totally detached himself from reality, and Narada starts to ponder, yeah, this guy is definitely crazy, but it is also crazy that we're so blasé about the fact that we could just be completely blown up and it's all our fault. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, like, kind of the takeaway from the film. Though I disagree that Narada ponders that, because all he does is stop once on the stairwell down as he walks slowly away. It's really, I don't know, like the doctor says as explicitly as possible, but as much as that is the point, I think we are supposed to be thinking about that. I don't think it's like very well developed at all. The idea that maybe we are actually the crazy ones. I think it's a really good point. It does leave me thinking at the end of the movie, but I wish that it had been more weaved into the rest of the narrative. Yeah, instead of just like kind of the idea and at the end the doctor says, maybe we're the crazy ones, Joker society, and then that's it. (laughs) Oh, that really bothered me. You can't just say that's the thesis of the film without doing it. Narada heads out of the psych ward as Kiichi's mistress and her young child pass him, and you realize, oh wait, yeah, these characters don't actually know each other. They actually have never shared the room together, so they pass, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of cool to have this moment of two characters that we know know him, but don't know each other. One rises and one falls, and that's actually uh, my favorite shot in the movie. I didn't really have anything that really stood out to me that much in it. It was nice, you know, like, the older generation is kind of doomed and going down, but the younger generation has a chance and is going up. It's it's obvious, but I, I appreciated that it was well-composed. 
it was obvious. I wouldn't call them doomed. I think they're receding into the background as per nature. But yeah, I thought that was nice. I, I also got that. And I'm not usually good at getting that kind of thing, but I got it. It was nice. Yeah, well, he gave you a long time to think about it. <laughs> yeah, he even stops in the stairs. I didn't realize that was Kiichi's mistress and that the little boy was his son. I don't know if it's Kiichi's son, but it is definitely his mistress. I think the child might just be hers. I thought she was another daughter of his. I don't blame you because there isn't much to distinguish any of them from each other. Yeah, she looks the same age. It was very confusing. I don't know who that guy was, the, like, shitty big guy who was, like, riling him up by saying, oh, man, it'd be so fucked up if we all died in a nuclear explosion. <laughs> our hair would fall out. Our bones would melt. <laughs> He's, like, losing his mind. I was like, this is brutal. Who is this guy? Yeah, I, th I thought he was related to the stomach cancer guy in Ikiru. <laughs> yeah, similar role. I think he knew that he was being shitty. He's like smiling as he riles this old man up. That was very confusing. I don't know who we, I like. Was that Kichi's mistress's husband? That I believe is Kichi's mistress's father. Father. I believe that she lives with her father. Okay. Which is even weirder because Kichi is, I think, older than her father. <laughs> that is not a good way to, uh, you know, connect with your in-laws. Uh, one of the one of the many weird things that even registered to me is one of the most fucked up things going on. But okay, well, sure. I didn't I didn't recognize any of that. I couldn't tell. I was really confused by it. Yeah, it was a whole lot confusing. Yeah, when they were all together, I was trying to be like, okay, this is the, the daughter's husband. This is the is this a daughter or someone's wife? I don't know. The one that was by that more famous actress. I couldn't tell. Yeah, very confusing. Even though I thought that was the best part of the film when they're all together. So my favorite shot is one, I think it's a bit earlier in the film, I don't know exactly when, but it's it's after it's established that he is, you know, kind of nuts and trying to move to Brazil and everyone else is like, no, let's just kind of move on. Let's just live in Japan and live our lives. And the shot is similar to the opening shot where it's the camera looking down at the street, except now we see a car going one way as this huge procession of people, workers, maybe on lunch or something, all going another way. So it's this long stream of people in white shirts going down to the right and the car moving up kind of against the stream. And it's very much so like going against the flow of everyone else. It externalizes this guy who is going against the flow of society, the flow of ideas, the flow of sentiment in Japanese society and like going upstream at his own peril. And I, I thought it was really nice. It's not too long of a shot. Though it tracks for a while, and it I don't know, externalized his character, I think, very well. I liked it. Yeah, it was the first one that stood out to me. I was like, oh, that's... I get it. That's something, I guess. Like, Overall, I felt like a lot of the cinematography in this was very pared down, especially coming off of Seven Samurai, which was so elaborate. But, it, you know, it, it is also a much more pared-down film, where it is just a lot of people talking in rooms. There isn't too much that he can do. I was surprised it was Toho instead of Dahe. It doesn't feel quite as much like a Kurosawa film as a lot of other ones. Yeah, definitely. It was a small film. Another difficulty that this film gives us comes in regard for the Toshiro Mifune hotness scale. All right, 10? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, he's a dilf, so I don't really know what to say. No, I thought you looked like total shit in this movie. <laughs> I looked awful. Therefore, I have to give him a 9. Yeah, I was like, do I give him a 9.0 or an actual 0? <laughs> or a 1? Or I really didn't know. I'll give him a 9.0 as well, uh, understanding what our scale is, winking to the audience. He did not look good in this movie. We're curving the grade here. Yeah, yeah. All Toshiro Mofane hotness scales will be curved to an A. It feels like a crime to have to rate him in this way. I feel like I'm objectifying him in a way that I shouldn't be. Yeah, he's so old. <laughs> but he's not. I know. <laughs> in, real life. in real life, he's like 30, 37. He's just wearing those Coke bottle glasses. One of the best looking men in Japan. Yeah, it's the glasses and, like, just a god-awful amount of makeup. <laughs> really, it was it was something. He was definitely picked because he's the one that's good at getting mad. And this character just has to be mad for the entire runtime. 
Takashi Shimura is a little bit too soft-spoken. Well, I mean, Takashi Shimura's role in Drunken Angel, he was furious the whole time. Like, he has showed us that he could get angry. I feel like if he merged that character with Watanabe from Akiru, he would have done this role really well. It wouldn't have been so distracting. But even then, in Drunken Angel, he's still, like, Mr. Too Damn Honorable. Like, he's still, like, a good guy, whereas this old guy is just awful. <laughs> just a totally batshit insane crank. Even though he's right, he's a crank. It is what it is. That's the film. Yeah, I mean, overall, yeah, I'm gonna rate it, like, a six. It's fine, but it, it just, there's nothing really special about it, and there's a lot of it that doesn't work. It's fine to just pass the time, but it isn't really a Kurosawa film that I'd recommend. Yeah, it's a more or less competent film. If you're really into the Kurosawa backlog, or if you're into, like, 50s Japanese cinema, sure. I also give it a three stars out of five, or two out of four, or a six out of ten, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> It is nice to know the, the backstory. I think that is nice that in this composer with the one writing credit. I'm fond of saying that the backstory behind the film doesn't excuse the film. All we have is the final product. You know, the, the film lives forever, but it does make sense knowing what happened. Like, you know, it, Kurosawa was a depressed man at this point, and he's just not working in the same way that he normally would be. And it's it's just a shame. The deck was stacked against this film, and it, you know, it turned out better than it could have. I'll say that. Yeah. Could have been in the idiot level disaster. It, it could have turned out almost like one of his, like, early propaganda films or something. Yeah, yeah. Or a sister's got a two-level disaster. But it didn't. It's a well-made film. Yeah, it's just unfortunate that it wasn't better. Yeah, the very competent director not doing his best. <laughs> yeah, not trying his best and not doing his best. Although I do think that he will rectify that next week with his Macbeth adaptation, Throne of Blood. Hell yeah. I'm excited. Should I read Macbeth by next week? <laughs> it only takes two hours. But <laughs> yeah, we went to public high school. I mean, yeah, right then. But I couldn't tell you anything else I learned then, let alone that. So we'll see. I'm excited for Throne of Blood. <laughs> I remember the fact that I read it. Yes. Old lady. No, no. His wife. <laughs> she who is an old. Who's supposed to be hot wants to kill him because of the witches. I'm almost certain that's entirely correct. Alright, see you next week on <laughs> <laughs> Bye. On Sashiro's voice. <laughs>